Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. I don't have to tell you that uh, we live in a very wicked world. You would probably agree with that. The question I want to ask is, living in this kind of an environment, how should we respond? How do you respond? What is the proper response? And what is an improper response? We're all faced with it. And we all respond one way or another, even if it's to do nothing. And the other option is to go to some extreme. So what are all these possibilities? And what is the wise way to respond to this wicked world in which we live? In going through the book of Genesis, we have come to a passage that I think gives us some insight in what not to do. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 34? Genesis chapter 34. Look at verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, we are in the middle of the story of Jacob. If you've been here the last several sessions, you know that Jacob left the land for 20 years. He has come back. He has been reconciled with his brother, and he ends up in the city of Shechem. And this passage is simply telling us that he had a daughter. Now, if you recall, the book of Genesis says he had 12 sons and one daughter. So this is his one and only daughter. Well, having 12 brothers, she probably wanted a girlfriend. So verse 1 says she uh, went out to see the daughters of the land. She went out to find a playmate. Went out to find somebody her age that she could relate to. Only it was daughters of the land. It wasn't an Israelite, but they were in Shechem, and all she could find were Canaanites. Now, Bible teachers try to uh, figure out how old she was. Uh, there are ways to determine that, uh, given the little information we have, but it's not an exact science. For example, uh, I looked at one commentary that said she was somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. Another said she was 14 to 15 years old. And a third said she was 15 to 16 years old. So the spread goes from 13 to 16, but all three mentioned 15. So I'm going to just take the average of the speculation and say, it'll give you some idea. She's about 15 years old and she's out looking for a girlfriend. That's all. Verse two, and when Shechem, 
the son of Hamor, the, Hit, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her. He took her, laid with her, and violated her. All right. This is simply telling us she got raped. That's what's going on here. Saying it uh, a little nicer than that, but that's what it amounts to. The one who raped her is Shechem. And there's, she's there in the city of Shechem, and his name happens to be Shechem. But notice he was prince of the country. So that perhaps... Uh, he thought he had uh, special privileges being the prince. Grew up with a privilege and thought maybe he was a little above everybody else. You can just imagine some uh, person growing up who was the son of a politician or son of somebody that's wealthy and they don't have any, they're not given any discipline, they're given, they're spoiled so to speak and they just go out and think I can do anything I want to that perhaps is what's going on here. But let me make another observation. Jacob shouldn't have been in Shechem to begin with. We know that because of some other stuff we've read prior to this. And even if he was there, he should have provided some protection for a 15-year-old girl out on her own in the neighborhood because it was Canaanite territory. She was going into a neighborhood that wasn't Israelite and they were pagan with all of the stuff that pertains to that. So Jacob is falling down as a father. He's not protecting his teenage daughter and she pays the consequences. What's interesting in this particular case is that the fella raped her and look at the next verse, verse 3. His soul was strongly attached to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So even though he violated her, he fell in love with her. He wanted to marry her, which becomes immediately obvious if you keep reading the passage. So, Verse five says, uh, verse four says, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Now that would strike an American ear as strange. You go ask your father to go get her? What's that about? And the answer is that was the custom of the day. Parents made arrangements for their children to be married, so it was according to the custom of the day for him to go to his father and say, uh, I found the one I want to marry, now you go make arrangements for it. So these opening verses just sort of set the stage for what is about to happen. What happens next in verses 5 to 12 is the father goes and requests that we make arrangements for this kind of marriage, and that's where the story starts getting interesting. Verse five, and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. He just heard about it. He apparently didn't hear it from her. How he heard, we don't know, but he heard. 
Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came home. Uh, this is rather startling. A father hears that his daughter has been raped, and he doesn't say anything. He waited till the sons got home, and at this point said nothing. Now, that's particularly interesting when you get deeper into this book, and later one of his sons goes missing, and he gets very upset. His daughter gets raped, and he's sort of passive about the whole thing. Now, some have suggested that it would be the custom for him to wait till the sons got home. But if you read the rest of the passage, it's obvious that he is passive in this whole thing. You could almost say he was a little insensitive to the whole thing. At any rate, uh, the text tells us that his sons were in the field. Verse 6, And Hamor, the father of uh, Shechem, went out to Joseph to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob, Joseph uh, came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry. Now pause. Do you see any contrast here? Did it say that about Jacob? No. And so just the way it is written, it is obvious that they get upset, they're grieved, they're very angry. And Jacob just is passive in the whole situation. And they were very angry, verse 7, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by laying with Jacob's daughter, their sister, a thing which ought not to have been done. Now what's significant in that verse is the use of the word Israel. This is the first time it appears in this regard, and it is indicative of the fact that this is a word that is used of God's chosen people. So the author is subtly saying, ah, this was done to one of God's chosen people. And they were very angry about it. It was their father's daughter, but it was also, she was also their sister. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son, Shechem, longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. And make marriage with us. Give your daughter to us and take our daughters to yourself. So you shall dwell with us in the land and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it. Acquire possessions for yourselves in it. All right. Here's the proposal. Not just for marriage, but not just for this individual marriage, but let's just, let's just dwell in the land together and we will marry your daughters and you can marry our daughters. Uh, let's have some intermarriage. Now, what did I just say about God's chosen people? Israel? And they were not to intermarry? Bad suggestion. And on top of that, they want to make a commercial venture out of it. 
They say, look, we're all going to live in this land together, so we'll just intermarry and we will trade together. We'll do business together. So he didn't just ask that Jacob's daughter be married to his son. He made a much larger proposition than all of that, namely that, that we just make this a custom and make a business relationship out of it as well. Verse 11, then Shechem said to his father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me even so much dowry and gifts and I will bring according to what you say to me but give me the young woman as a wife. Now, whatever you say about this fella, and there's a lot of negative things you could say, he apparently really fell in love with this girl. He was willing to say, you just ask whatever you want. Ask a dowry, ask a gift. Now, perhaps the dowry would go to Jacob and the gift would go to her. Maybe that's why he said the both of them. But at any rate, He's saying, whatever you ask, I'll do. Just give me this girl. I want to marry this girl. Well, you got to give him credit. Uh, he at least indicated that he loved her deeply. All right. Now, here's the response. That was the request. Here's the response. Verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now the key word in that verse, as you can guess, is deceitfully. So what they are about to say is an attempt to deceive them. They aren't sincere and they aren't speaking the truth. This is, a, is deception, pure and simple. Verse 14, and they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a reproach to us. Oh, this is really interesting. Keep reading. But on this condition, we will consent to you. If you will become as we are, that is circumcised, in every male of you is if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. Did they mean any of that? No. How do we know that? Because the text says it was all a deception. Now, uh, if you'll recall, God told Abraham to practice circumcision, which was a symbol and a sign that God was going to greatly multiply Abraham and give him a lot of descendants. However, other people practiced circumcision even adult circumcision. 
So this request that all of their men be circumcised isn't out of the ordinary. That would have struck them as, okay, that's a possibility. If you make that practice and we may, we'll just uh, adopt your custom, we'll all be circumcised. So that's the proposal. Now keep in mind, this is a deception. All right, keep reading. Where did we leave off? Uh, look at verse 17. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, we will not take our daughter, uh, we will take our daughter and be gone. So they're uh, into heavy negotiation. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, uh, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. That's an interesting statement. I mean, we're told repeatedly he really loved this woman and he was more honorable than all the people in his country. He wanted to do the honorable thing. He raped her, but he loved her. Interesting combination. And he's called more honorable than the rest of them. So you can only imagine what the rest of them did. All right, so uh, where did we leave off? These men are at peace with us, verse 21. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take our daughters to us as wives, their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. So the people are saying, you know what? Okay, let's do this. Only, verse 22, on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out to the gate of the city, heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now the significance of the gate is that in ancient times, all the business dealings were done at the gate. This is something like saying they all met at City Hall and they had this great discussion and the proposal is, look, we're going to become one people, and this is their custom, this is their condition, and so all we have to do is all the men have to get circumcised. And then everything that theirs will belong to us. Did you pick that up? And we will swap our daughters. We'll marry their daughters, they'll marry our daughters, and we're just all going to live happily ever after. Was this a possibility? Not for one second. Well, what are they up to? I hate to be so blunt, <clears throat> but can you imagine all the men in town being circumcised all at one time? Let me just say as kindly as I can 
that if they all did that, they weren't in any shape to be a fighting force. That's the deception. So, verse 25, And it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain. The Bible speaks very plainly. They were in pain. That's probably the understatement in this whole chapter. And two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brother, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. Say, so how could two men? By the way, how many brothers did she have? Remember? Twelve. So how many went and did this? Two. Ten of them didn't participate. Only two. Simeon and Levi. Now you say, well, how could two, just two, kill all the men in a city? I just told you. Three days earlier they had been circumcised. That's how. <laughs> they didn't have the power to withstand this. Verse 26, and they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. So, uh, verse 27 says, the sons stop. Did you catch it? It's plural. Now, only two of the sons committed the massacre. But the rest of the sons join in the plunder. So verse 27 says, And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. And they took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, and they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. They cleaned up. They took the women and children. They killed all the men. They had been killed by Simeon and Levi. The rest of them took the women and children, probably making them slaves. They became their servants. But the point is, they took Everything. They took, the, uh, they took the people, they took the animals, and they took all the material things out of all their houses. They just picked this place clean. This was a massacre par excellence, if there can be such a thing. All right. Now we have, in verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. And I shall be destroyed, my household and I. <laughs> but they said, should we treat our sister but they treated our sister like a harlot. Now, this is where we get the real insight into Jacob. He finds out what they've done, and he's troubled. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word means distressed. He is really put out. 
his daughter gets raped and that doesn't seem to bother him. He finds out his son did this massacre and now he's greatly, greatly distressed. So he did not get upset over the massacre. He did not get upset uh, because of the abuse of circumcision. They shouldn't have had all those people circumcised. That was a sacred rite, R-I-T-E. And they abused it by having all these pagans get circumcised. They abused the God-given right. And in that sense, they broke the covenant that God had made. So this was a great disobedience to God. He didn't, none of that bothers him. What bothers him is his own skin. Did you see the verse? Here's what he said. You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Since I am few in number, they will gather themselves against me and kill me. Shall I be destroyed, my household and I? How many times did he refer to himself? He's only concerned about himself. And then the, the, the sons say, but they, but he treated our daughter like a harlot. Aren't you concerned about your daughter? We were concerned about our sister. Aren't you concerned at all about your daughter? Answer is, not really. Not really. All right, all I've done so far is tell you the story. Uh, what does that got to do with us? <laughs> How would you apply this Monday morning? The point of the story is, when their sisters were violated, her brothers deceived the family involved, destroyed all the men in the city, and plundered the property of the city. Now that's what's going on here. So what's the point of the story? Well, to really understand that, you've got to understand some of the things going on in the book of Genesis. So let me make a number of observations. Now, some of what I'm about to say is on the level of Bible study. I think when people go to church today, they want to hear something about themselves. Give me something that's practical to me. That's legitimate. Except, let me just point out that the Bible is about the Lord. And sometimes what we need in Bible study is to learn about Him and not us. Now eventually it'll get around to us, but maybe we need to learn some things about the Lord. Maybe this story is in here to teach us some things about Him. And I suspect that is the case. So, with that in mind, let me make some observations. What is the point of this sad, sordid story? It is not given in approval of what the sons of Jacob did. As an evidence of that, just look at the contrast between it and the other stories in Genesis. For example... Abraham had de dealt honorably with the Hittites in chapter 23. Isaac had behaved peacefully 
with the Philistines in chapter 26. But now Jacob's sons become the aggressors in conflict with the Hivites, Simeon and Levi, unrepentant treachery stands in stark contrast to Esau and Jacob's recent moral transformation. In contrast to Isaac's incident in chapter 27, this chapter contains no prayer, no divine revelation, no promised blessing, and no explicit mention of God at all. So, I'm quoting what somebody else said, and the point is, you need to see this story in the context of Genesis, and the thing that jumps off the page at you is the stark contrast of how others in the book, even just prior to this, have dealt very honestly and honorably with other people, and you come to this story, and it's the exact opposite. So, this story is obviously not given to say that the Lord approves of what they did. That's one observation. In the context of the book of Genesis, this episode explains why later Jacob passed over Simeon and Levite for special blessing. Now let me pause, because what I just said is important. What I just did a minute ago is I compared this story from what we've already seen in the book of Genesis. When you come to this story, having read everything else, you see the contrast between it and the other stories. What I then said is that as we get deeper into the book, it's going to become obvious that this story has a profound effect on the two men who instigated it and carried it out. That is not evident here, but trust me, this is a deeply significant thing that's going on in the book of Genesis. Uh, I can't go into detail now. We'll get there when we get the, the latter chapters of the book. But let me just say that this story, at least its repercussions, had an enormous impact on me when I studied the whole book. This is a very significant event into what happened later. So again, we need to see the story in the context of the book. By the way, have you heard me say that a few times lately? I've been saying that a lot lately. Uh, what's the key to interpreting the Bible? Context, context, context. Uh, I've been going through the book of Judges on Sunday morning and I, and I find myself, and you got to understand the story in the context of the book. And as you know, um, this night I've been going through Genesis, and I, and I keep saying, look at the context. You've got to see this story in the context of the book. And if you don't see it in the context of the book, you will not get the point. So, let me just say this much. As a result of their sin, Jacob passed over them when he gave out his blessing, and he gave it to Judah instead. So this has profound ramifications for the nation of Israel. Another observation. This story shows the importance 
of keeping the Israelites, the chosen seed, separate from the Canaanites. I pointed out as I was going through the story that God did not want the Israelites to intermarry with the Canaanites. And that's what is being proposed in this chapter. And that did not happen. Had they intermarried, Israel would have been swallowed up by the Canaanites. It was necessary for the nation of Israel to remain pure and not intermarry with people from other countries. The use of the name Israel, as I pointed out when we were going through the story, indicates that Jacob's son had a, quote, substantial comprehension and recognition of the deeper values and implications of this event, end of quote. Later in the Mosaic Law, it would be made clear that Israel was to not play the harlot with the Canaanites, nor defile themselves with the Canaanites by intermarriage, nor by covenant treaties. In fact, the Israelites were to completely destroy the abominable and defiling Canaanites. So one of the things that's going on here is that they didn't intermarry and therefore contaminate the children of Israel through which the Messiah is to come, and that's the point. So, in this regard, it demonstrates again the sovereignty of God. In going through Genesis and Judges, I imagine I was going to get into all this when I went through them both at the same time, that it just over and over again, God uses the most unimaginable things to accomplish his purpose. So he does not approve of this at all. And yet there's a sense in which the Lord sovereignly used it. Somebody has said, while the story in this chapter operates at a level of family, honor, and brother's concern for their ravaged sister, the story nevertheless also carries along the theme that runs so clearly through Jacob's narratives, namely that God works through and often in spite of the limited self-serving plans of human beings. The writer's purpose is not to approve these human plans and schemes, but to show how God in his sovereign grace can still achieve his purpose through them. I thought that was a particularly insightful observation. That God is not limited by our self-serving plans. He works in spite of them. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, even his, their wrath will praise him. God uses it all. So he used this sin, if you will, to accomplish his greater purpose. Not in their individual lives, individually, they pay dearly. But in terms of the nation and his ultimate plan, God used it for accomplishing his purpose. One more. The profound personal message embedded in this passage, I think ultimately concerns the right response to living in a wicked world. That's the story, and that's what it's all about. Here are the Israelites, 
living among the Canaanites, an incredibly wicked people. And so what we have here is how they respond to that wickedness. And it seems to me that that is one of the personal lessons we could take from this story. The people in this passage went to one of two extremes. Jacob was indifferent and indecisive. He was passive. He didn't do anything. The right uh, the, his sons sought justice, but they were ruthless and excessive. So here are the two extremes. On one extreme, here is a passive, indifferent, insensitive guy who does nothing. And on the other extreme are sons, two sons especially, who go to all kinds of excess to right the wrong done to their sister. The right response, it seems to me, is between the two extremes. We should be watchful in a wicked world. For example, teenagers need to be supervised and seek justice when appropriate. But in the same time, we should not be excessive in executing the justice. Matter of fact, as I have mentioned, there's two things going on here I want to unscramble. One is, he should have protected his daughter, right? So I'm preparing to teach this passage tonight. And I'm driving around in my car this week. And I turn on the radio. And I have several buttons I push that if I don't like what I'm hearing on one station, I hit another one. And I was hitting all the buttons. And I came upon some station that was talking about the fact, and I didn't catch it from the beginning, so I didn't get all the details. But apparently one of the hosts on that program had a teenage daughter who was about to date and the discussion was how do you protect your daughter and people started calling in telling how people did that and one of them told i think it was a relative who said when the young man came to date his daughter as he met the father and as they were leaving he shook hands with him and left something in his hand a bullet <laughs> said, be sure you bring my daughter back safely. <laughs> well, the Lord just dropped that right in my lap for this passage. It fits perfectly. But the point I really want to make is this. We shouldn't go to any extreme. Don't be passive and don't be too overaggressive. But do what is honorably honest and deal with justice. So let me conclude by quoting someone who I think has said it well. Attempting to destroy or punish evil through lawless or unrighteous acts should not be confused with righteous indignation. Rather, the righteous must seek justice and oppose evil in a manner that brings honor to the Lord and his covenant. So the right response is not either of the two extremes. It's to figure out what to do that honors the Lord and does what's right 
all at the same time. Father, thank you for giving us the whole concept of justice. And thank you as well for teaching us that we can go too far. We can take justice into our own hands. We can execute justice beyond justice, and it becomes injustice. So, Father, thank you for these gracious lessons. In Jesus' name, amen.